Let's pray together. Our Lord, even as we come together this morning, we really do need to hear from you. Uh, your, your word is able to make us wise. It's able to encourage our hearts. It's able to lead us to action. It's able to give us hope in the brokenness of this world. And so we really do pray and ask that you would do all of those things and even more than we even know to ask. We trust that you really will. Uh, and it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. I want to begin this morning by just making sort of a, a strange confession to all of you. Uh, I've, I've shared this with some of you already, but uh, I think it's maybe time for me to tell everybody. Uh, one of my primary goals, one of my major goals in life, I'm talking bucket list item for me, is to be summoned for jury duty, right? Now, I know that's really weird because most people uh, try to evade that, like the play. They try to do everything that they can to not be selected. But it would be a dream come true for me. I mean, I only received a letter once in my life, like 15 years ago. And then my dreams were shattered because the night before I called up and they told me that I was canceled. And so I was so upset when I heard that. And it's almost like ever since then, every day, I sort of anxiously walk towards uh, my mailbox, hoping that there will be a letter in there summoning for me for jury duty. In fact, uh, a few months ago, I was standing up here, actually. I was talking to Amy Spencer, and she told me that she had been summoned and selected for a week-long trial, and I secretly hated her in my heart. I really did. I was standing there. I was so jealous of her. I, just, I was so upset because I, I, I think I could be really good at judging people, and I just need to be given a chance to be able to do it, you know? But in all honesty, I really think it would be amazing to be a part of a jury, because I think the whole idea of a trial is really fascinating. I mean, you spend hours, uh, days, weeks, sometimes months presenting the evidence. You're shown the facts. You hear the experiences of witnesses. You're presented with the thoughts of experts. And after everything is brought forward, after every argument is made, in the end, the jury is just left with sort of one job. They have one responsibility and that's to come to a decision. They've considered everything that's been presented so far, and now they need to make up their mind. Because at that point, there's no more witnesses to be heard, right? Uh, there's no more evidence that they're going to consider. They're not going to pull things back up again. At that point, all has been heard. And at that point, they have reached the end of the matter. And now, it's just simply time to make a decision. Now, why do I say all of this? Because it's exactly where we find ourselves this morning. You see, we have reached the, the last and final sermon of Ecclesiastes this morning. And for the last 14 weeks, some of you are sighing like a relief, right? But we have. It's the last and final uh, sermon in the series on Ecclesiastes. And for the last 14 weeks, it's like we've been sitting in a courtroom, uh, hearing the preacher present his case. You know, for the last 14 weeks, he's been sharing the facts. He's been talking about his experiences. He's been weighing all the evidence. And for the last 14 weeks, he's been laboring to just sort of prove one point, to bring home one point, and that's this, that without God, life under the sun is vanity. That without God, life under the sun is meaningless. Vanity, of all vanities, Everything is vanity, right? Meaningless, meaningless. Everything is meaningless. That was his phrase. 
He said it like 38 times in this short book, this short book of 12 chapters. He said it 38 different times. It it was the way that he began the book in chapter 1, verse 2. It was the way that he ended the book in chapter 12, verse 8. And in between, he said it 36 times. For 14 weeks, he presented his case. He told us that work is vanity. He said that we will spend a lifetime working and working and working, and for some of us, in the end, we will have nothing to show for it. He said that human wisdom can be vanity. Some of us will spend our entire lifetime trying to study everything that there is under the sun, and in the end, we're just left with greater sorrow and greater anxiety about life. He told us that wine and women and wealth, all of it is vanity that those things never satisfy, that no matter how much we have, we're always left wanting more. It's like for 14 weeks, we have been sitting in a courtroom, watching the work of a skilled attorney, listening as he masterfully presents his case. In fact, that's the very thing that he says, right, in this book. If you open up on page 559, we're looking at verse 9 and 10. I want to encourage you to pull out the Bible in front of you. It's on page 559. This is exactly what's being said. Verse 9, it says, Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. Now, most scholars believe that the preacher stopped preaching in verse 8. And that what we're looking at right now in verse 9 and the rest of it is sort of like an endorsement that you would find in the book. Sort of like the endorsement that you would find in the back of a book, right? So what is the endorser saying? Well, the endorser is basically saying this. The endorser is saying that the preacher, the preacher that we have been listening to for the last 14 weeks, he has poured everything of himself into this book. He took no shortcuts. He cut no corners. Every thought was wrestled with and studied. Every word was carefully arranged with great care. Every proverb was hand-selected. Every lesson was based on his experiences. And not only did he care about what he said, he also labored over how he said these things as well. So think about it. He wouldn't just say something like, you know what, community is really important. You should really care about community. Now, what did he say? He said, a cord of three strands is not quickly broken, right? Or he doesn't just say, you know what? One foolish decision can ruin a lifetime of goodness. He doesn't just say that. No, instead he says, dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench. It's brilliant, right? Seven Mile Road, the preacher put his blood, his sweat, his tears into this book, and he did it for you. He presented it for you. I really do hope that you have sensed that. You see, this this book wasn't just written to entertain you. This book wasn't just written so that you would have something to talk about for 14 weeks. No, this book was written to cause you pain and to cause you conviction. This book was written to cause you pain and to cause you conviction. What do I mean? Look at verse 11. That's what it says. It says, the words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. Goads and nails is what it says. In other words, this book was written to cause you pain and to cause you conviction. 
You see, a goad is sort of like a sharp stick that shepherds would use. It's a sharp, a sharp stick that they would use to, to keep an animal sort of moving in the right direction. So they would use this, this stick to hit the animal as they were traveling, and it wasn't meant to sort of hurt the animal, but to produce enough pain so as to keep the animal on the right path, right? To keep the animal humble. Now let me ask you, didn't Ecclesiastes do that? Didn't Ecclesiastes do that? I remember on the first week, week one, uh, Jay was standing up here and he was preaching, and I think he told us that our, our lives are meaningless, like something like 700 times, right, in that first sermon. And, and I remember Sharon, my wife, was sitting right next to me, and she turned over to me and she asked, how long is this series again? And I was like, 15 weeks. She was like, okay, I'll see you in 15 weeks. She was like, I'm not, I'm not coming back anymore. This is done, right? Because it was hard. I mean, how many times could you hear over and over again the meaninglessness of life, the vanity of life? It was hard. It was painful. It, it was uncomfortable. But you see, the preacher held nothing back, right? He didn't mince words. He, he would tell it like it is every single time. Or even if for a moment, if we were, you know, thinking more highly of ourselves than we should, it's like immediately the, the preacher would sense that, and he would walk in, and he would tell us, you know what, you're all going to die soon. You remember that, right? Right? I mean, didn't it feel like basically every week, we had a Jay or Sibby standing up here and just telling us, reminding us, you're going to die. You're going to die. I mean, a Jay even stood up here two weeks ago and he preached to the children and he told them they're going to die too, right? <laughs> little kids, poor little kids. They, that day, I imagine, I wonder what that evening was like for them, right? But they were told they were going to die. That's what Ecclesiastes did. It, it kept us honest about life. It, it caused us pain. And it wasn't afraid to address the, the difficult things about life. But you see, Ecclesiastes wasn't just written to cause us pain. It was also written to convince us as well. To drive home a point like firmly fixed nails, the scripture says. To hammer thoughts deep into our brain, right? And that's what it did. In fact, I received an email from someone in some of my road that said this. That because of Ecclesiastes, she said, I am daily aware of how empty life is apart from God and how constantly I'm seeking satisfaction from so many things that never satisfy. Dot, 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 yay, exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point. And I'm not sure if her yay was serious or sarcastic there, right? But it illustrates the point. After 14 weeks of Ecclesiastes, we will never hear the word vanity the same again. We won't. Whether you agree with it or not, the vanity of life has been hammered into our brains like nails firmly fixed. It's been hammered into our brains. And, and just like that, the preacher labored to convince us of so many truths, to hammer our minds with so many truths so that he would ensure that we're not going to sit on the fence about how life operates. That there would be no way that we would reach the end of this book and that we would sort of sit on the fence of what life really is like. And here's the thing. All of these words that were meant to cause us pain and to convince us, these weren't just the opinions of man or just the experience of one person. Look at the second half of verse 11. It says, they are given by one shepherd. They are given by one shepherd. You'll notice in the, the ESV translation that maybe you're looking at, the word shepherd is capitalized. And that's because, you see, this, this word is not referring to just a human, 
right? We're not just talking about Solomon, the shepherd. No, this text is referring to God himself. You know, yes, the preacher is the author of this book, but make no mistake about it. These are the very words of God. These are the inspired, infallible, inerrant words of God. God, in fact, has been the one that has been causing us pain and causing us conviction week after week. And listen up. If that is true, and it is, then it won't be enough for us to simply admire the book for its eloquence. And it won't be enough for, simple, for us to simply respect the book for its thoughtfulness. Because these are the very words of God, Ecclesiastes demands something much more. You see, Ecclesiastes was written so that we would do something about what we have read. It was written so that we would gather all the evidence that was presented to us over these last 14 weeks and we would come to a conclusion. It was written so that, just like a juror, we would now have to make up our mind. That's why Ecclesiastes was written. And that's exactly where we find ourselves this morning. Look at verse 13. It says, The end of the matter, all has been heard. The end of the matter, all has been heard. What's it saying? It's saying this, listen. It's saying, there's nothing left to say. There's nothing more that I could possibly say to you. I have caused you enough pain. I have convinced you enough. Everything that needed to be said was said. Everything that needed to be shown was shown to you. We have reached the end of the matter. And now, now it's time for you to decide. Now it's time for you to make up your mind. And listen, that is true whether you're sitting here this morning and you are a Christian or you're sitting here this morning and you're not a Christian. It is still time for you to decide. You know, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, we are so glad that you are here with us. We're so glad that you would join us. And now, I, I don't know if you're just joining us for the first time this morning or you've been with us over these last 14 weeks uh, as, as we've been studying through Ecclesiastes. But, but can I say to you, you too are being called to make a decision this morning. You too are being called to make a decision now, I don't know where you are exactly in your consideration of life. I don't know where you are in terms of your consideration of God. I'm not sure of the types of things that you have thought through so far. Because I do think it's important for you to think and to, to ponder and to weigh the options. But I wonder if at some point, it's not that you need to know one more thing, or that you need to read one more book, or that you need to have one more conversation, but instead, maybe at this point, you just need to make up your mind. A pastor named Tim Keller once said this. He said, in our times, it's cool to search for God, but it's uncool to find him. In our times, it's cool to search for God, but it's uncool to find him. I think there's a lot of truth to what he's saying. You know, we sort of live in a, in a twisted time these days. We live in a time where we say things like, it's the journey that matters, not the destination. And so we'll spend a lifetime reading and debating and critiquing every, every idea that there is under the sun, but we'll never actually land on anything. In fact, that's what verse 12 says. 
It says, of making many books, there is no end. And much study is a weariness of the flesh. What is that saying? In other words, listen, there will always be a new book written. I think I read something like 600,000 books are written every year in the U.S. alone. There's always going to be a book, new book written. There's always going to be a new book that we could read. There's always going to be a new idea that we should consider. And some of us will spend an entire lifetime doing just that. You know, just a few weeks ago, I was talking with a guy named Sam that I had just met. I met him that day, and, and, and yet in the, in the couple of hours, the few hours that we had together, I could really tell that he was really well-read, and, and he was really thoughtful, and he was really aware of the different worldviews and thoughts that were out there. And he told me that he was into something called gnosis, right? And he, it's essentially the idea that the point of life is to try to acquire as much knowledge as you possibly can as you're living life, right? So you're going you're gonna to learn and, and read and, and question everything that you can possibly get your hands on. And, and that's exactly what he was doing. Uh, he was reading the Bible. He was reading the Gita. He was reading the Quran. He was reading philosophers. He was reading scientists. He was reading everything he could possibly get his hands on. And he said that the, the point wasn't necessarily to land on any one thing, but instead to consider everything. That knowledge mattered more than conviction. That, that the journey mattered more than the destination. You know, for many, people would look at Sam and say, you know, he's sort of the, the prime example, the best example that we can give of someone with an open mind, right? You say, that's, a, that's exactly how you should be. You should consider everything and anything that there is to consider. But consider this quote from a man named G.K. Chesterton. He says this. He says, merely having an open mind is nothing. The object of opening the mind, as of opening the mouth, is to shut it again on something solid. Otherwise, it can end up like a city sewer, rejecting nothing. And I think that's exactly what Ecclesiastes is saying this morning. At some point, at some point, an open mind has to make a decision. An open mind has to come to a conclusion. But some of us sitting here have been considering God for a long time. You've thought tons about him. You've had plenty of conversations regarding him. But maybe this morning Ecclesiastes is saying, you have heard enough. You have heard enough. You've considered plenty. And now it's time for you to decide. But listen, this isn't just true for the non-Christians in this room. It's true for the Christians as well. Seven Mile Road, for 14 weeks, you have been sitting and listening to everything the preacher has had to say. You've heard him speak on the vanity of work. You've heard him speak on the importance of community. You've sat and listened as he spoke on the need for us to be able to take risks in life. And week after week, he has been presenting his case to you. He's providing you with evidence. He's spoken from experience. He's labored to, to cause you pain and to, to cause you conviction. But what if week after week, we have gone home and our lives have looked exactly the same? Our lives have not looked any different even though we have been hearing. Some of us still lived, some of us still live consumed by work, hoping to find 
meaning or identity or, or security by our labor. Or some of us still live isolated lives. You know, life is hard and is challenging, but we still are not thinking about community because we're still convinced that we're going to try to navigate through this as best as we can. Or some of us still live afraid of taking a risk. There's plenty of opportunities for you to do things, to say something, to do something. But we're always looking for the perfect circumstance to fall into place before we will ever make a decision. Well, if any of that describes you, Ecclesiastes is calling you this morning to make up your mind. Ecclesiastes is calling you this morning to make up your mind. What you need is not one more sermon. What you need is not one more conversation or one more book. You have been shown everything that you need to see. And verse 13 says, this is the end of the matter. All has been heard. Now it's time to do something about it. So maybe you're sitting here and you're asking, okay, well, if that's true, what am I supposed to do, right? Well, interestingly, whether you're here and you're not a Christian or you are a Christian, you're being called to do exactly the same thing. Look at the second half of verse 13. It says this. It says, fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. What is the call? Whether you're here this morning and you're a Christian or you're not a Christian, you are being called to make the decision to live your life fearing God. You are being called to make the decision to live your life fearing God. Now, if we were to be honest, we hate the idea of fearing God, right? I mean, it, generally speaking, we hate the idea of fearing anything, but it especially doesn't make sense to us when we're talking about fearing God. Like, if you're told to, to love God, sure, I can do that. Worship God, fine. But fear him? I mean, something just, sort, just sounds off about that, 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 that command, right? But you see, I think it's because we've misunderstood what fearing God means. One rapper said it this way, and I'm, I'm quoting a rapper. You should listen to him. He's great, right? He said it this way. He said, I'm God-fearing, but I ain't scared. I'm God-fearing, but I ain't scared. And I think that's exactly the point. You see, fearing God is not the same thing as being scared of God. Fearing God is not the same thing as being scared of God. You know, my wife will tell you, there are two people on this earth that I am deathly afraid of, right? Two people on this earth. One is my previous boss from my old job, and the other person is Suge Knight, right? Now, if you don't know who Suge Knight is, you should Google him, and you'll know exactly what I mean. I am deathly afraid of him, right? Now, if, if I either see my old boss or Suge Knight walking down the street, I'm crossing to the other side every time, right? I'm never going to try to defend myself. I'm going to walk across the street every single time. Why? Because I know how powerful they are, but I don't trust that they're actually for me. I know how powerful they are, but I don't trust that they're actually for me. But you see, fearing God is completely different. Fearing God is not the same thing as being afraid of him. Now, fearing God means you're absolutely convinced of how powerful God really is. But fearing God also means that you're absolutely convinced of how much God really is for you. Fearing God means you're absolutely convinced of how powerful he really is. But fearing God also means that you're absolutely convinced of how much God really is for you. 
Now, here's the thing, right? Fearing God isn't some sort of abstract idea. It's not just a feeling or a concept, right? No, your fear of God will be demonstrated, actually, through your life. Your fear of God will be demonstrated through the way that you live your life. Your, Your fear of God will be reflected in and through your actions. Ecclesiastes says, fear God and keep his commandments. You know what's another way to say that? It's by saying, fear God by keeping his commandments. Fear God by keeping his commandments. What that means is that you do tremble at his power, right? But you also trust that he's for you, and so you do what he says. You know, one scholar said it this way. He said, fearing God is sort of like a trembling trust, a trembling trust. You tremble because you're overwhelmed by his power, but you trust because you're overwhelmed by how much he is for you. Fearing God is a trembling trust. Let me give you an illustration. My daughter Asha is is now seven years old, and so she's starting to lose a lot of her baby teeth, right? It's coming out one by one. Now, tooth removal in the Abraham household can look and sound a lot like street fighting, right? It really can. There's a lot of loud yelling, and there's a lot of screaming. There's some kicking and pushing and punching at times. There's a bunch of running away, and there's a bunch of chasing after people. And all of this because of a loose tooth, right? This is sort of what happens every time there's a loose tooth in my house. You see, and and a few months ago, one of her two front teeth was loose. So I was trying my best to do whatever I can to help her pull this tooth out, but she wanted nothing to do with it, right? So she was kicking and screaming and yelling and running away as much as she could, and I would chase her down trying to help her pull out this loose tooth. And I remember at one point, right, it was chaos at the house. At one point, I I grabbed her by the shoulders, and I said to her, listen, Ash, I can help you pull out this tooth. Do you trust me? Right? It was like a dramatic moment. I, I really was. I grabbed her, and I said that. I said, do you trust me? And, and, and she looked at me with, with tears just rolling down her face and like snot and like all sorts of stuff. And she looked at me, she was like, mm-hmm, I trust you, right? Like, really? And so I said it again. I said, okay, I'm going to pull out your tooth. Do you trust me? And once again, she said, mm, I trust you. And so then as soon as I went and tried to reach over and grab her tooth, she pushed me down and she ran away and she got away. You see, she said she trusted me, but in that moment, her actions proved otherwise. Some I wrote, fearing God isn't just a feeling or an idea. It will be. It's going to be reflected through your actions. If you fear God, you're going to do what he says. In fact, if we find ourselves often doing the opposite of what God says, you should really ask yourself, do you really fear God? Do you believe in his power? Do you even believe that he's actually for you? Because here's the thing. Ecclesiastes gives us a real important reason why we should fear God and keep his commandments. Look at verse 14. It says, For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. You know, we've said this before, but here is the the twist that the preacher has been driving at this whole time. It's sort of like that movie Sixth Sense, right? If you watched Sixth Sense before, you remember kind of watching the entire movie, remembering and thinking that Bruce Willis is alive, right? So you watch every scene, you listen to every conversation, and you're watching the movie, and you have no clue 
And then all of a sudden, at the end of the movie, we get to the end of the movie and only to find out that he's actually been dead all along. And do you remember that, that feeling that you had when you discovered that for the first time, right? You go back and watch those scenes again and you say like, how did I not realize that, right? How did I not see that when, the, when I was watching the movie the first time? But it, it's, it's like once you make that realization, you can't see the movie the same way again, right? Once you make that realization, you see it differently from that point on. Well, you see, the same sort of thing is happening here in Ecclesiastes. For weeks now, right, we have been saying, if life under the sun is all there is, then it's all vanity. It's all meaningless. There's no point to any of it. But it's sort of like, as we have been wrestling with this thought and, and pondering this thought about the vanity of life, it's sort of like the camera starts zooming back slowly. The camera within Ecclesiastes is, is slowly zooming back, and all of a sudden, it gives you a view beyond the sun. It gives you the opportunity to see life beyond the sun, and all of a sudden, we remember that there actually has been a God beyond the sun all along, a God who will stand in judgment over us one day, a God who will judge every one of our deeds, both good and evil. And when we make that realization, it's almost like you can't help but look at life differently. You look back in life and you don't see it the same anymore. Because you see, if all of our deeds, all of them, if all of our deeds will be judged one day, well then what that means is that everything actually does matter. Everything actually does matter. You see, life is no longer meaningless, meaningless. Everything is meaningless. No, the judgment of God means that all of life, every single moment of life is meaningful. 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 Everything is meaningful. It matters. It matters. Every deed matters. You see, every deed, whether good or evil, will be brought to judgment. When we think typically about the final judgment, we usually think about it in just one way, in terms of the judgment that leads to condemnation. But did you catch that Ecclesiastes says this? Ecclesiastes says, for God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. So it seems like on the day of judgment, there will sort of be two judgments. A judgment that leads to condemnation, and then a judgment that leads to commendation as well. A judgment that leads to condemnation, as well as a judgment that leads to commendation. So let's quickly consider both. We'll consider condemnation first. You know, if you, if you just read through Ecclesiastes 12, that you would think that, that this is sort of just like every other religion in the world. Because here's how every other religion thinks about it. Imagine in your mind scales, right? Most religions think that in the end, God is going to place all your good deeds on one side of the scale, and then he's going to place all your bad deeds on the other side of the scale, right? And in the end, if your good outweighs your bad, then you're all set. You're good, right? But in the end, if your bad outweighs your good, then you have big problems. And that's how so many of our friends 
our friends, our Muslim friends, our Hindu friends, and so forth and so on, think about life. But you see, the, the Christian gospel, the Christian gospel is unlike any other religion or worldview. In the end, Christians won't stand in front of God with a scale in front of them. Christians won't stand there hoping that their good outweighs their bad. Christians don't come to God hoping to impress him with their resume because the truth is we will never, ever be good enough. No, instead, you and I will stand before God on that day and we will point to Jesus. We will point to Jesus because he is the only one who has perfectly met God's standard. Let me say, if you are here this morning and you're not a Christian, well, my friend, I want you to know and I need you to hear this. I want you to know that there will come a day when you will stand before God and you will give an account for your life. There will come a day when you will stand before God and you will give an account for your life. And I am praying that on that day, that your game plan isn't just a hope that you've been good enough. Because you won't be. You won't be good enough. And so the only hope that all of us, you and me, the only hope that we have to escape the condemnation of God is to trust in Jesus who was condemned on our behalf. That's our only hope. Jesus, who had done nothing wrong, was condemned like a sinner, like the sinner that you and I are. He was condemned like a sinner on a cross so that sinners like you and me can be rescued from this condemnation. You see, that's the good news of this Christian gospel. It is all grace. It is completely a gift. And it's being offered to you even this moment. And Ecclesiastes is saying, listen, Everything has been heard. This is the end of the matter. Now it's time for you to make up your mind. What more could you possibly consider? What more do you have to read? Now it's time to make up your mind. But if you're here and you are a Christian, then you know that your salvation has never been about your good works in the first place. It has always been the grace of God. But notice that Ecclesiastes also mentions that even our good deeds will be brought to judgment. Even our good deeds will be brought to judgment. A judgment not of condemnation, but of commendation. You see, even Christians who are saved by grace will stand before Jesus one day on the day of judgment, and we will hear from our Lord. Listen to some New Testament scriptures that teach on this. This is 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10. It says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5. It says, Therefore do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness, and will disclose the purposes of the heart, then each one will receive his commendation from God. You see, 
on that last day, if you belong to Jesus, what's at stake for you is not heaven or hell, right? What's at stake for you on that day is not eternal life or eternal death. You're not going to stand before God and discuss your sins because the judgment for your sins took place 2,000 years ago on the cross. Jesus took care of that already, right? You're not standing before him waiting for judgment for your sins. That's already done. But you will stand before Jesus for commendation. You will receive a, a joyous reward for your obedience. Now, I just want to say off the top, this is a big mystery. I don't know that the scriptures talk enough about this for us to really know what this will entail or, or, or what this will include or what manner of reward this will be. But what I do know is this, that every example of your obedience to Christ will not go unnoticed. Every example of your obedience to Christ will not go unnoticed. I mean, you yourself may have forgotten the things that you have done, the things that you have done years ago, even the things that you have done this morning, but Christ promises, Christ promises you that he will never forget. He will not forget how you cared for your parent who was going through suffering. He will not forget. He will not forget how you took your child to the hundredth doctor's appointment for their needs. He will not forget. He will not forget how you changed your child's diaper for the 500th time. He will not forget. He will not forget how you have taken risks to share the gospel with someone who needed to hear it. He will not forget. He will not forget how you turned down a huge promotion just so that you can spend more time with your family. He will not forget. He will not forget how you sacrificed the money that you needed to be able to provide for someone else who was in need. He will not forget. He will not forget how you sat and cried with a friend who was overwhelmed by grief. He will not forget. He will not forget the cup of cold water. He will not forget the tear of compassion. He will not forget the word of testimony. All of it has been seen and recorded by the living God. All of it matters. And on that day of judgment, you will receive your reward. And because that's true, then Christian, hasn't the preacher proved his case? Life under the sun really is meaningful because the one beyond the sun cares deeply about every single one of your deeds. And so you should give your life to fearing him and obeying his commandments because it matters. It matters. Every deed matters. You know, on that day of judgment, maybe we'll see the preacher face to face, right? And maybe we'll get a chance to talk to him. And if we do, we can tell him, you know, we can say, you know, life wasn't easy. Life was not easy at all. But you caused me pain. And you caused me conviction. And you convinced me that there was nothing better than fearing God and obeying his commandments. And that made everything meaningful. 
And if we do that on that day, I imagine he would look at us and smile and say, amen. Amen. That is exactly what I hope you would have decided. Let's pray. Our Lord, we really are convinced that life apart from you in this world is meaningless. Some of us have tried. Some of us are continually trying to live life apart from you. And it really is meaningless. If, there are, if all there is to life is what we see with our eyes, uh, then life really is pointless. But we're grateful, Lord, that that's not true. That life really is so much more than what we see. We're grateful that there really is one who exists beyond the sun and that you and your judgment are perfect. And because you exist, everything in this world is meaningful. So help us, O oh Lord, to obey. Help us to fear you. Help us to believe that you really are powerful. Help us to believe that you really are for us. Help us so that we would be so consumed with you that we would put away lesser things, that we would fix our eyes on Jesus, who has redeemed our vain lives and has given us meaning and purpose. Please help us to make that decision to live even like that today. And we pray for anyone who doesn't know you or has been rejecting you or running away from you. We pray that even today, that they would reject the meaninglessness, the vanity of life apart from you, and live life by fearing God and obeying your commandments. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.